What if in 2024, you got a little bit better every day? When you're learning a new language with Babbel, that's exactly what you're doing. And if Babbel can help you start speaking a new language in just three weeks, imagine what you could do in a full year. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses are helping me learn real-life conversation skills in Spanish. It's getting so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, or speak to merchants. Studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove Babbel is better. One study found that using Babbel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com SPP. That's right. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest, I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. Chris Stemp here. Thank you so much for tuning in as we bring you a truly smart person. What does it mean to be a smart person? Well, really, it's just... Be cool, have good ideas, and come on the show. But I guess there's some prerequisites, such as our next guest. Our guest this week is Safi Bakal. Safi received his BA summa cum laude in physics from Harvard. No big deal. His PhD from Stanford. After working for three years as a consultant for one of the best firms ever, McKinsey, he founded a biotech company developing new cancer drugs. He then IPO'd that company and served as its CEO for 13 years. Oh, and in 2008, he was named Ernst & Young New England Biotech Entrepreneur of the Year. Look, I tell you these things just because I really love the caliber we can get, the depth of knowledge that these folks have, and I really hope it translates into the interviews. Additionally, we will be discussing Safi's brand new book, which literally came out March 19th. It is called Loon Shots, How to Nurture the Crazy Ideas that Win Wars, Cure Diseases, and Transform Industries. I'm going to make the intro short and sweet, but I just want to make a quick tie-in. The last episode, we were discussing how your mindset and the stories you tell yourself directly lead to what you experience, and essentially what you accomplish, what you get out of this world. And I really like this as a follow-up because although we go all over the place in this interview, at its core, Safi's talking about a mindset of curiosity, of 
learning, of pushing the boundaries, of being willing to nurture these crazy ideas. So look, you listen to this show because you're thinking, you're innovating, you're curious, you're building. I hope that the things we are bringing you, this episode, the last one, all of the ones we've done, are helping you to not only nurture the ideas you have, but turn them into reality. I hope that you're accomplishing what you want and you're thinking big because you can do it and we're here to help. By the way, let us know what your crazy ideas are. Smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com. What's going on? What are you building? Hey, maybe if it's a cool story, we can talk about it a little bit on the show or maybe we'll have a new segment where we show clips of what all our listeners are doing. I think that would be awesome. Who wants to start that? Shoot us an email, smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com. Short, quick, simple, Safi Bacall on his book, Loon Shots, How to Nurture the Crazy Ideas that Win Wars, Cure Diseases, and Transform Industries. Enjoy. You went to Harvard, you went to Stanford, you were named Entrepreneur of the Year by Ernst & Young. You have all of these formal designations, but I'm just fascinated by the drive it must have taken. So I want to start, let, let's go back to kind of you know, going to Harvard, going to Stanford. What was the motivation to pursue a topic such as physics at some of the top universities in the world? I guess I was just curious. I mean, I've always been driven by curiosity. I wanted to figure stuff out when I was a little kid. I would take take stuff apart and try to figure out how it worked. And and I think my my early on, my parents taught me to ask questions. They didn't, they didn't say like, what, you know, what did you learn? What do you, they, they would talk to me about what good questions are you asking? And so that just got in my brain, the idea of asking questions. And so then I just kind of go around life being curious. And it, and it, it, it it's, it, in fact, it's kind of interesting. I was asked to give a, um, uh, I don't know, maybe, a, I think it was a few months ago, uh, to, to stand up and, uh, in front of an audience, I think it was the Jewish New Year, and say, look, you know, how do you think about your life and your future and going forward? And I, I kind of boiled it down to, uh, I needed some short mnemonic to remember, otherwise I wouldn't, you know, I, I would have trouble remembering. And I, I boiled it down to four C's, uh, one of which is the first one of which is curiosity. If I'm going through life and I'm, whether it's at my job or personal life, and I'm not curious, I'm not just feeling I want to understand something, then I start to think about why am I really doing this? Whether it, it, it's work life, for example, and I've, I've changed careers a couple times. And for me, the sign of when it might be time to change careers is, am I really being curious? And if I'm not really curious about what I'm working on or the questions underlying it, then I start to think, well, why am I doing this? Is this really exciting me? So I, th I think for me, it's just, it's curiosity. With the physics stuff, it was, I was curious about how the world works, how it's just kind of amazing when you think about it. You can look at, you just ask really basic questions. I can stick my finger in a liquid and I can slush it, slush it around. But then as I lower the temperature, all of a sudden that behavior completely changes. Why? I mean, the molecules inside are exactly the same. There's no molecule that's thinking, you know, I feel like being a liquid today, so let me just slush around. Or I feel like being a solid today, so let me just stick in place. Why? So just asking those kind of stepping back and asking why is a very interesting way. I mean, I think that 
got me interested in physics in the beginning, but even it got me interested in business. Why do businesses do certain things? Why are, you know, why are uh, perfumes really close to the cash register when you walk into a, a department store? Why do they put, you know, in Starbucks, why are the, the, these little chocolate things right next to the cash register? So just going around and asking why got me really curious first about physics and about business. And then I, I discovered it's sort of a good sign in, in personal life as well. If you want to, you know, when, when I was a single guy and dating, it was a good sign for me about this is someone where it will work out. And my now wife, for example, I was just fascinated by her. And I just, I was just endlessly curious. And if you're not curious, then it's a sign that maybe you need to move on. Curiosity is a subject that I have just dove into. I, I'm actually in the process of pitching a book about it. So this is really interesting setup. I want to talk much more with you about that. But I didn't anticipate this going down the how to date properly rabbit hole. <laughs> but, but I will say, when you mentioned this thing of curiosity, you know, I'd say there was this switch that really triggered in my brain in my early 20s. Prior to that, I, I wasn't that curious. I was just like, let me go play sports and things. And I remember I was on a date with this girl. She was a doctor. And, and I was just really fascinated by her profession. So I'm asking questions and she looked at me and I'll never forget. She goes, do you really care about all this? And it was so weird. I was like, yeah, she was like, cause most guys don't ask this many questions and it's a good thing. So I'm putting this out to the world. Like, Hey guys, if you're on this dating scene, genuinely want to learn about the other person. And if you don't, as Safi just said, you're probably not a good fit. Yeah, not exactly where I was expecting this conversation right, to right. go. But in fact, on dating, I uh, it, it is. I, I also found it the exact same thing that you kind of said, which is when I was dating, I was living in Manhattan at the time. And there's there's a lot of guys. This may be shocking to you, but there's a lot of guys who are really into themselves in Manhattan. <laughs> exactly. I know. Stop the presses. <laughs> this is big news. It's going to be headlines. Yeah. There's a lot of people who take themselves very seriously in Manhattan, and guys yeah. especially. So when you sit down, I... I really wasn't particularly interested in, in talking about myself. I mean, I know myself. I'm right. around myself all day long. Who cares? I, I have almost zero interest. In, it's probably not great to hear as a podcast interviewer of me, but you know, I, yeah. But when I would sit down at a at a date or even getting to know somebody, you know, I would certainly I would be politely answering if they asked me anything. But I was much more curious to learn about you know what made them tick. What did they struggle with? What were their things that really kept them up at night? What made them really happy? What made them really sad? Why were they doing it? What would they be doing if they weren't doing the thing that they were doing now? And I was just really interested in that and what makes people tick. And so I would be asking, and I, I would get the same reactions that you described because I think especially in Manhattan, you know, when you're surrounded by high powered bankers and lawyers and consultants, you know, you'd get women are probably a little more used to sitting down at dinner and then uh, the guy opens his mouth and doesn't stop until the check arrives, you know, yeah. talking about himself. Yeah. So that was my, I was curious. And so that, you know, that was, um, as you say, that was sort of like, uh, I think that can be very appealing, uh, to, to have someone that curious in you. And, and for me, the, um, when I was reaching that stage where I was tired of the dating life and, you know, just, I really wanted to find the right person and start a family. I remember I had a, a, an older, a wise a friend who was kind of a mentor at the time. And he, he had, uh, he was kind of a classic old school gentleman, almost from another era. 
um, you know, from the Midwest and dressed really well, very successful and had been, uh, you know, and he'd also was a good looking guy. He'd been very successful in his dating life. And, and at that point he was, you know, sixties and, and he said to me, Safi, just two, two rules uh, for dating, for, for thinking through. Number one, mental health, especially when you're living in Manhattan. That's actually a pretty high bar to find yeah. someone who's pretty well adjusted. Yeah. And not going crazy. And part of that is just the environment there. But two, find someone you really like having dinner with because you'll have a lot, be having a lot of dinners together. And if you're bored, that's really not a good sign. I've actually kept those two rules, and those two those two rules are actually really surprisingly useful rules if you are uh, dating, because you know the physical attractiveness stuff will take care of itself. You don't really have to concentrate on that if it's if it's not there, it's not there. But the the keeping in mind when you go to dinner, are you really excited to go? Like when I met my wife, it was supposed to be a thirty minute coffee. It turned into five hours, and we shut the shut the restaurant. And then the next time we got together, we shut the next restaurant down. The next time we got together, we shut the restaurant down. So that's uh, the curiosity and the, um, is absolutely what you say. It's something that's very important in the personal life as well as the professional life. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. I remember when I met my wife, similar things, but we don't need to go into that. What I do want to say is you mentioned something that, that I find to be common amongst the curious, which is sort of a lack of interest in themselves. And, you know, sometimes people refer to it as being humble. I find it to be uneasy sometimes talking about myself, which I have to do. Uh, oftentimes, if I'm teaching a workshop, I have to give my background and I, I just don't like it. And and so when you mentioned it, it made me think, is that a prerequisite to being curious, like a lack of interest or a, a lack of want to talk about oneself? I I haven't really thought about it in those terms, I guess I'm trying to think now, are those two independent right, right. criteria? Because I, I think I know, I, I mean, there are certainly curious people who have low E or don't take themselves very seriously or have low E. And I, I know a, a lot of people like that. In fact, many of the best scientists that I know are like that. They just don't take themselves very seriously and they're really much more interested in the world around them. Right. Um, I'm trying to think if I know people who are equally interested in the world around them but are also pretty you know, take like to talk about themselves a lot. I, I, I think there probably are. Well, that's the thing. I'm sure they exist, but I'm wondering if they do it for the wrong reasons. And I'm just working through a hypothesis now. If you're curious just to the fact you want to accumulate things so that you can then put them out into the world and sound or feel better about yourself, I would call that, you know, disingenuous. So I, I don't know. I don't know. I, I mean, I think you're honest. I, if I think back, for example, the, the, the best, some of the best scientists I know, they're really focused on what's out there. They're not so right. much focused on themselves. Right. And I think if you spend a lot of time focused on yourselves, among other things, you miss what's out there. There you go. You well, miss, you know, really interesting cues or, you know, what drives great science, for example, is finding the little things that don't fit, the little puzzles, the, the tiny little questions that you don't you can't really explain at first. And then you just start pulling on that thread and pulling. So to do that, and it's sort of the same thing in business to really succeed in business. You got to find those little missed opportunities that other people aren't seeing. And you got to start pulling on the threads. Like what, why is everybody look this off? Right. What am I, what am I, you know, what's the opportunity here? What, what is everybody missing that I'm not missing? And then you just keep asking those questions and pulling on those threads in order to do that. Well, 
you really have to, if you, if you only have X hours in the day or X, you know, certain fixed amount of time of brain power that you can process questions, if you allocate more of that to the external world and less of that to the internal world, you're probably going to do better in business and probably in personal life too. Yeah. So, the, so there may be something to your hypothesis. So you went to Harvard, you went to Stanford, got your PhD, you worked with, I know, Robert Laughlin, you know, the, the Nobel laureate, you were a Miller postdoctoral fellow in physics at Berkeley. I mean, you know, the resume is quite impressive. And what I'm curious about is, although it might have simply been your drive to answer questions that that helped you get there, how much of your motivation was external? You know, because often I get asked this a lot from younger people specifically, right? It's like, well, what should I do so that I accomplish this goal, whether it be a, an amount of money, a title, et cetera. And I'm wondering from your perspective where your background reads as if it was all on this track and it was always success. Were you driven by any end goal throughout that process? Uh, it, it's funny you mention that. It's the, I never really think about the goal. I think about the learning. And what has always driven me is my learning rate. And so in, I'll, I'll give you, I'll throw out a little physicism and then I'll explain it in plain English. In physics, it, it, when I chat with like physics friends, I'll say, in life, I, I couple to the derivative. And then they laugh because it's sort of like an inside joke. Let me explain. <laughs> that is, and, and, that know, is such a physics joke. It is like, a, you know, only like really weird geek, geeky nerds can possibly oh, understand what that means. So let me translate that into plain English, which means, and I've done this throughout my life, which is what really turns me on is when I'm learning something really fast, like really new and really difficult and feeling myself get better and better. And the rate of progress is high. And when that slows down, then I am not enjoying myself as much. So I'll, I'll give you an example. When I start, I started off in one area in graduate school in one area of science and, and, uh, I, I, I dove in and my learning rate was really high in the beginning. And then after three or four or so years, it, it kind of flattened. I was like one of the crowd. I, I was, I was in the club. It was not a club that I was, you know, trying you know, to struggle, be. struggling to try to learn and speak their language. I had learned the language. I was publishing papers and so on. And I was in the club. And then once I was in the, I guess it's like the Groucho Marx line. Like once you're in the club, you're like, Oh, whatever. Uh, and so once I was there, I sort of, the learning rate kind of flattened out some. And so then I, I started to look around and then I jumped to another field of science um, where I felt like a complete imposter because they were just speaking language that I'd never heard, talking about ideas that I'd never heard, what, referencing. What field was that? What was that jump you made? Well, I started in, in a field called particle physics, which is the science of the very small, what happens inside atoms, what happens inside the nucleus of atoms, what happens inside protons or neutrons or okay. quarks. So I started off in what's called particle physics, a science of the very small, and then I jumped. I moved to working into what's called the solid state physics or condensed matter physics or many body physics. It has a bunch of different terms, but basically it's the science of the many. Why do you see these strange, weird behaviors in, in groups of particles or collective behaviors, like I mentioned with the example of water, you know, why do you have, right. why, why do these molecules suddenly completely change their behavior from slushing around like a liquid to being totally rigidly solid? How do they know how to do that? And why do they do that so suddenly? There's no, there's no 
leader molecule saying, you know, you should really be moving around a lot and slushing around and then say, you know what, you should do something completely different. You should hang around and be totally rigid. In fact, in some weird way, that was the origin of this book, which is a different way to think about the behavior of teams and companies, uh, that it's not about what you happens at the top, but it's what happens at the middle. Mm. It's about the forces that are acting on individuals, and it almost doesn't matter what's happening at the top. But to answer your question, when I jumped into that field, I it's like you've been, you've, you've grown up in you know, South Africa, or, or you know, you've grown up in one country, and you've been speaking one language, one local dialect, and then all of a sudden, you know, a crane comes, picks you up, boom, and transports you into a completely different land where they're speaking a totally different language. And I kind of love that because all of a sudden you have to scramble to figure out. You have to read the history. You've got to understand the field and the characters and the people and the big ideas and then the language. And so that is the slope, a slope of learning. Mm. And so I get excited when the slope of learning is high. And when it's flat, I, it's, I'm a little bit less excited. So the, sort of in the physics language, you call that derivative. So a high derivative means a high slope means a high learning rate, and a low derivative means a low slope and a low learning rate. And when you say in physics, I couple to something means how do you respond to, you have some kind of interaction back and forth with it. That's what's going on, and how does it make you feel, or how do you respond to it? And so for me, when the slope is really high, I feel very good, I'm very excited and energized and having a great time, so that's like my coupling to the derivative is high. And then when the slope is very low, I, I, I'm just not as excited. And so it almost seems like every couple of years, you know, when the learning rate slows down, then I kind of think about doing something different. This week's episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Is there something that interferes with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? If so, BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who are specialized in issues such as depression, stress, anxiety, trauma, anger, family conflicts, grief, self-esteem, and more. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. Anything you share is confidential and it's so convenient. You can now get help at your own time and at your own pace. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions plus chat and text with your therapist. If you're not happy with your counselor, you can request a new one at any time at no additional charge. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. And for Smart People Podcast listeners, you get 10% off your first month with the discount code SMART. That's S-M-A-R-T. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com smart. Simply fill out a questionnaire and get matched with a counselor you'll love. Again. That's betterhelp.com slash smart. And now back to the episode. Man, I think you probably just verbalized the mindset of a lot of people listening to this show and, and myself included. So my first question is, how are you comfortable with that? Because so many people strive to get to the place where they are, quote unquote, in the club, right? They, they want that safety they want that knowledge, the habits. Uh, they don't want to feel like newbies all the time. And, and I mean, this has come out a lot in the research recently, right? People, 
you know, want to just be told they're good, not that they're trying hard. So what is it about you or how did you do this to where, you know, you could have stayed in your first field of physics and been a genius and felt good about yourself and, and known what you're doing. And I don't want to say coasted, but it, uh, known what you're doing. But instead you go somewhere else where now you're back at the bottom of the ladder and people can be like, oh, well, you know, there goes Safi. He doesn't really know much about this and he's the new guy. How do you deal with that constant starting from the beginning? It's the joy of learning. I mean, what I, and as you say, it's a mental mindset. So, you know, everything is kind of a, a story that you tell yourself in your head. If the story that you tell yourself in your head is that uh, my happiness is going to be driven by whether other people say I'm an expert at X or whether other people let me in, into their club, then okay, that's the story you're telling yourself in your head. And so that's, that's what you'll think. But if the story you tell yourself in your head is, I get really excited when I can feel my progress going up at a, at a daily level or a weekly level, then that, that's what's going to be true for you. And you just, you, you got to realize that all this stuff is, is stories that you tell yourself in your head. So I, I'll give you a more physical example because I, I do a bunch of sports and, um, I, I played a lot of tennis, uh, competitive tennis when I was in the juniors. And then I switched to martial arts where again, I ended up being pretty good at tennis, but then I, I didn't know anything about martial arts and it was awesome to start from the beginning and then learn these moves. And then, um, maybe I don't remember what it was five or 10 years ago. I, um, started getting into triathlon and I, you know, been running casually for a while and, you know, anybody can pick up a bike. That's not hard, but I'd never swum. I didn't really know swimming very well. And I, I think I'd gone to the YMCA when I was a kid and done the usual stuff. And I just sort of flopped around in the pool. But if you're going to do, especially long distance triathlon, you need to know how to swim really long distances and you need to know how to do it in open water, not just in a 25 yard pool. Uh, you know, it needs to be for a, you know, a half Ironman, for example, it's 1.2 miles. That, that was the distances that I did. And I didn't know the first thing I could, you know, I could swim a couple laps and then I get tired. And so I, uh, found, uh, uh, a teacher who, uh, you know, I was living in New York at the time. So there was a lot of pools around, but they have one of these kind of square bathtubs where the, they had this like uh, running water going like through current. all the time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I don't know. I don't remember what they're called, but anyway, it was this young guy who was like a, a really good swimmer. I think he'd, he'd, he'd won some awards or something. And, and, uh, I'm coming in there. I, I think I was in my late thirties or something. And, uh, you know, and he's just like showing me how to swim and he just like breaks it down. I thought I knew how to swim. Apparently not. He just like breaks down. He said like, forget everything you knew about your stroke. It's just, and the way most casual swimmers, uh, swim is totally wrong. And I, all serious swimmers know this, but it's entirely about body position. It's entirely about where you put your head and how uh, balanced you are in the water and how streamlined you are in the water and then how you swim with your core and your hips, not with your pulling with your arms or kicking with your legs. And so the awesome thing about going back to being a beginner there is that every week the delta between where I was last week and where I am this week was huge. So if you're in one sport and you've been doing it for a long time, you know, let's say you're at an eight and you, you could spend a month and get yourself to an 8.2. But in swimming, I was a two. And then, you know, a couple of weeks later, I'd be a four. And then a couple of weeks later, I'd be a six. That delta is awesome. 
that's the joy of learning. That's the joy of going back to the beginning is that your delta week on week is so much bigger than anything you're doing in life. And especially, you know, once you're, when, when you're a kid and you're in school, you know, everything is kind of new. And so your delta is high on everything. You know, you're studying American history or you're studying this or you're studying that. Of course you didn't know. But when you've been out in the workforce and you're not in school anymore, your delta, your week on week delta of what you're doing is probably not very high. And that's why the mental mindset there is just think about that delta. Think about your week. And so going back to the beginning, learning how to swim or learning how to do this, you have this incredible joy, especially if you have someone who can help you or a good means of learning or a good means of practicing of having that high delta, which is a rare, a more and more rare experience as you get older and older. Uh, so that that's what I enjoyed. And that's how I thought about it. I didn't care very much what other people thought about how I was doing or whether I was in this club or that club or got this thing or got that thing. I was really interested in my own personal delta. Was I growing pretty quickly? Was I advancing in the skill? It could be, you know, the swimming lesson that this young guy was teaching me about how to swim. And I went from like nothing to being able to do no problem one, you know, mile swims in open water. And it's been, you know, a huge pleasure. Um, or different areas of science or different areas of business. It's the joy of going to something totally new and then seeing yourself improve. So the trick is you've got to visualize a high delta. The trick is going into something new. You've got to say, this is a joy. This is a gift because I am, you know, at this state, whatever age you are, like I'm not a kid. I'm not in school anymore. Right. Kids, Kids get this gift of like learning. They may not think of it as a gift, but it, at the time, but it really is. And it's re it's really quite rare once you're out of school, once you're in your later twenties or thirties or even or beyond. It's it's a gift to be able to experience something totally new. Like you, for example, you made a shift from working at Franklin Covey to to pot, to to blogging and podcasting, and so. How did you experience that? There was a high delta, I'm sure, at the beginning. Right. Wasn't there a certain kind of joy in that high delta? Oh, that was yeah. Different, different from your previous career at, uh, at Franklin Covey? Oh, yeah. And well, and that's one of the questions, though, is what I found is that that's not always a welcomed mindset, right? Because a lot of people have said, oh, you're, you're always changing. I mean, it appears every four years or so, five years. And I wasn't able to verbalize it for a while what was going on, but it was this level of I would I would stress out about learning and, and getting up to speed and figuring things out, which it sounds like you don't have the stress aspect. That's unique to me and probably many people. But as soon as I was there and it was stable, I'd go, well, well, this is boring and then change. The problem is these are the people that are seen as job hoppers or don't have direction when in fact as you're saying, and as I've learned and seen and heard from many guests, it tends to be the mindset that serves you best. So what I was wondering is, especially when it when it comes to employers, how do you marry this idea of constantly wanting to evolve and learn new things with they often want to force you into a specialty? Constantly wanting to evolve and learn new things doesn't mean you have to switch jobs. You can if you want to but it doesn't necessarily mean. So I'll give you uh, some examples. So like I joined a uh, consulting firm 
after I did academic science. In fact, I was really curious. I, in fact, I ended up joining this consulting firm and I, you know, every now and then people ask me about that and they say, why, or how did it happen was I couldn't figure out what these people did for a living. Right. This is, this is McKinsey by the way, right? It was, yeah, it was McKinsey and like, yeah. So I, I had had some, uh, 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 physicist friends, uh, scientist friends from Stanford who had, who had gone a few years before me and they were saying I should check it out, that it was unusually interesting. And I was, remember asking them, Oh, okay. So what do you do? And then it just, all I heard was blah, 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 blah. <laughs> I like, I could, I, you know, we help you know, somebody, somebody solve problems or whatever. I just, I couldn't wrap my mind around that. I'm like, what? what? Like, okay. I don't understand. Like, what do you actually do during the course of a day? Yeah. And then it was just blah, 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 blah. And I like, I couldn't figure it out. And then I, that actually piqued my curiosity. Like, wait a minute people pay you to do blah, blah, blah. I don't get it. Like, yep. So then I remember, so I said, you know what? I, they do say it's kind of intellectually challenging in an interesting and surprising way that you wouldn't expect. So like, all right, okay, whatever. I'll just give it a shot. And then I would do these interviews and, uh, they had these, like, you know, a whole series, like a battery of 30 minute interviews. They'd ask you a bunch of stuff in the first 15 or 20 minutes. They said, do you have any questions? I asked everybody the same question. I said, yeah, could you explain to me what you do for a living? Cause I, I'm just having trouble following it. Yeah. And, and they sort of laugh and they'd say, they'd give me some sort of not, you know, non-answer today. And I'm like, I, what I'm really having trouble doing is like you wake up in the morning. Okay. You, you, you take a shower, you put on your clothes, you get in your car or a bus or whatever. Okay. These are McKinsey guys. So they're not getting in a bus, right. but you, you, you go to work, you open your office door, you sit down in a chair and then what happens? Like I couldn't wrap my, like I couldn't, get a clear answer and like the first person said some stuff and it just didn't make any sense to me and then the second so I just like all the way through all the way to like that you know you go through these rounds and then I I was just I really I just wanted an answer to that question yeah I couldn't figure out why are people paying you know for guys like me who don't know anything about business and I really didn't know anything about business at the time like I don't get it why are they paying money for people who know less about their business than they do. I just, uh, and what do you do during the day that makes them pay you money? I'm, I'm like crying inside because you just defined, I think the, a lot of people's questions about what consulting is. Yeah. And you know, at the end they offered me a job and I took, cause like at the end I'd been through, I don't know how many interviews and I don't, can't remember how long the process takes, but like, uh, they offered me a job and I, t- it, it, part of that, and I also had a faculty job that was being offered me on the side. I was like choosing between them. Part of me is I was just freaking curious. I couldn't get a straight answer. Yeah. I'm like, I'm going to take this job so I can get a straight answer to that damn question because yeah. I know what the academic life is like. That I don't have any questions about. I cannot for the life of me figure out why people pay these people money. After a couple of years, I realized that yeah, it's what is crazy it? And it, what is and it, it makes a lot of sense. Tell us. Well, there's, there's an, it's, it's in some sense, it's an inefficiency in the problem solving market that they're plugging, which is, let's say you you have a company that sells washing machines. You know, you, you need to focus on making good washing machines, marketing those washing machines, selling those washing machines. Now, let's say you have a question about, should you acquire another washing machine manufacturer in Europe? Well, who do you have on your staff that really knows how to think through the pros and cons and how much it's a cost. Well, you can't really ask the guy who's doing marketing, selling washing machines. You can't really ask the guy who's, you know, with a screwdriver putting them together because you, and you can't really afford to keep on staff someone who's an expert in 
growing through acquisition of a European company. It just doesn't make sense. You could hire a couple of people and keep them around all year long, but that kind of question comes up maybe once a year. Mm. And it just, it's an inefficiency. So it's like a, any other kind of inefficiency. There's a solution to that. And it just doesn't, it's too costly for you to keep a, a team of people who could answer that question if that question only comes up once a year. So that the once a year that you get presented that opportunity, should you acquire another washing machine company in Europe, is that a good idea or a bad idea? You, it's inefficient for you to keep the people who know how to solve that problem and who have seen that problem many times before on your staff and pay them all year round when they just be twiddling their thumb 11 months of the year. Yeah. What you want to do is find somebody who, who has done that problem many times and hire them just for one month. Right. You don't need them for 12 months. Just pay them for one month. And let's say you pay them more than if they were be on your staff. Well, you're not paying them 12 times more. Right. Right. If it only matters one month out of the 12, okay, so you're paying them more than having a full-time employee. But you might be paying them twice as much. Right. You know, or, or three times. But you're not paying them 12 times as much. So it's a good deal for... McKinsey or any consulting firm, and it's a good deal for you. It's basically specialization. You specialize in making washing machines. They specialize in understanding whether, you know, solving the problem of is a foreign merger a good idea or a bad idea. And by specializing, you, it, it makes sense. So you, you don't have McKinsey making washing machines and you don't have those guys, you know, trying to figure out from scratch is a merger a good or a bad idea? So that, that's why it's better. And, and of course, you could also call it banker, but bankers get paid on commission. So then you're going to get kind of a biased answer. Right. Yeah. Right? Because they only, they only pay if the deal goes. So what you really want is someone who you could pay at a you know, weekly or monthly rate who's done this kind of analysis and problem solving many times and knows how to do it and can get it done in one month. And you can sort of have some confidence that they're not nuts. Right. Uh, and that, you know, of course, that's a debatable point when you hire a <laughs> consultant, and we, that's a different discussion. But uh, in general, that's why consultants exist, because companies need part-time help, not full-time help, and it's cheaper to hire part-time help than create a staff internally. Yeah. And then McKinsey, you know, or any consulting firm can specialize and get good on that question, just like you, if you're making washing machines, can specialize and get good on that question. And by specializing, it makes sense for both of you. Yeah. So that. It, it took me a while to wrap my mind around that, but there's that reason. And then there's a couple of other reasons where having someone independent and third party. Well, it, it makes make sense. sense. It makes sense. It is just funny because I have asked many people who are consultant, what do you do? And I've seen the same blank look on their face. Like, I know what I do, but I don't know how to explain it. So that was great. I want to, you know, of course, again, also, we're going to get into the book and we have some time. So we're going to talk about Loon Shots. But there's somewhere in this history of yours, you founded a pharmaceutical company. Is that correct? That's right. I, I want to learn about that because, again, this goes into your kind of polymath uh, ideal here. But but A, like why pharmaceuticals? Uh, B, what was it ab about the industry and the company you founded and I also, kind of knowing a little bit about you, your background, your knowledge, I'm assuming the reason you were doing it was for the positive benefit of society. Now, this is a complete guess, so you can say, no, Chris, I just wanted to do this. Uh, but I'm interested because that industry, pharmaceuticals, is so nuanced. 
So um, tell me about this pharmaceutical company you founded and why you did it. Sure. I, so I'd had one career, which is in science, and that you know, there you your job is to pursue truth. You're trying to understand how the world works, and you get rewarded to the extent that you your work is original, to the extent that you have new ideas uh, that can help you understand the world around you. And then I was curious to, uh, since I'd grown up in an academic family, I was just curious about the rest of the world that's, you know, not theoretical physicists, um, which as it turns out, and this may also shock you, that probably well over 99% of the world are not theoretical physicists. I had no idea. Is that, isn't that amazing? It is. Yeah, that was, it is. That was kind of news to me. So I, you know, I was kind of curious about that, um, that rest of the world. So I, you know, that, that, that stop and consulting helped me, you know, was a great education and how business and obviously a huge amount of how the world works, how things get made, how, how products developed is by groups of people organizing into teams and companies and getting things done. And so I was sort of fascinated by that process and by the, the capital markets. How do does resources get allocated from here to there and how do these groups come together? And so and that, of course, drives much of the world. So I was curious to learn about that. And then, you know, it's in consulting, your job is to make, generally speaking, large companies more successful. And so as an end mission, um, you know, that didn't excite me as much as doing something that could make a difference for them, that could make individuals uh, happier or better or suffer less. And so I, I knew I had experience as a scientist. I knew I had, I'd learned enough on the business side and I, you know, I was, was doing well enough that I, I knew I could keep going uh, down that path. But I also knew that I was sitting in this kind of weird combination of being able to speak fluent science speak to other scientists, but also being able to speak fluent business speak to business people. And I'd worked on trading floors and I'd worked in some medicine and I knew I could communicate in their language and connect with them and uh, then turn around and communicate with scientists in their language and connect with them. And that turned out to be sort of a rel relatively uncommon. Usually people can speak one language or the other, but not both. And for whatever reason, I was reasonably able to speak both languages. And when I thought about what I wanted to do, I, I kept hearing from science friends of mine that they had these great ideas and they were just having trouble bringing them out and commercializing them. And they were sitting in the labs and they weren't really helping people, especially my biomedical friends, people who were there, biologists or chemists or MDs. And that really appealed to me. Like I, I happen to have developed this skill set now where I could speak, uh, you know, a scientist in their language. And I also have learned over a couple of years how to speak with business. So I wonder if I could do something useful for people by bridging those worlds. And what really appealed to me was the medical world about, because in science, you really focused on writing papers and writing grant proposals and refereeing other people's papers and getting in prestigious journals. And it's really about your originality to advance your own career. It would be nice if you're in the, but that's 
you know, if, if your ideas spread beyond, but your training and the time that you spent and the grant proposal writing, which consumes an enormous amount of time and the refereeing other people's and the going to, is really about writing, you know, original research and you're not really trained and don't have time and bandwidth to get that research out into the real world. If you, you have some really important, interesting insight about how a particular disease works, how do help real people who suffer from that disease. There's a huge, you know, if you think of, I have an idea to, I have something that helps people with a disease that I have a, uh, as a football field, that I have an idea is going from like the end zone to the five yard line, you know, and going from the idea to, I have a product that can ease suffering that can improve patients lives is going from the five yard line to the end zone to, to the, you know, the opposing to, to, to yeah, the yeah, opposing yeah. No, I totally get it. Another 95 right, yards. Right. So the ideas are kind of getting you from zero to five and then getting the ideas into products is going from five is going th the next 95 yards. So, uh, I was interested if I, in seeing what I could do, if there was anything that I could do to help scientists, friends of mine who are sitting on these really interesting ideas, get them down the football field. And so that's, that's what got me started. And I was you know, there was an enormous unmet need in cancer, of course, mm -hmm. and there was a ton of science, basic science that was going on in cancer research at the time that was clearly not being advanced well or commercialized well. And some part of that is just that the, 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 the science is so technical that it's very hard for business people and investors to really appreciate it. Uh, now that, you know, this was... Um, I don't know, 15, almost 20, I have to remember, yeah, it was maybe 17, 18 years ago. So the world has changed and now cancer research is, you know, has exploded and there's all sorts of investment funds investing in everything they can find. But, you know, 15, 20 years ago, it was kind of a different climate. It, right. was, it was much harder to finance. There was a, a very high failure rate. There still is a high failure rate. And so it was, and there wasn't as much experience in, in bridging that world and explaining it simply and not as much interest. So that's what got me started. I wanted to see if I could um, marry those two worlds, if I could get back into the science and kind of get my um, feet wet again in, in thinking about not only basic science uh, and how does the world work, but in how to translate that those ideas about how the world works, or in this case, about how diseases work, into products. How do you, now that you understand how the disease works, how do you design, how do you go about intervening in that disease? If you understand that some process is broken down in a disease, some in cancer cells are just multiplying out of control and some things have broken down. So in cancer, two things have, have broken down. One is the accelerator pedal inside that cell because um, a, a cancer cell is just a cell that's growing out of control. The accelerator pedal is stuck on grow, 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 grow. So it just keeps dividing and growing and dividing and growing and dividing and growing. And the brake pedal, everybody, all cells have a brake pedal, which is uh, just like cars have a brake pedal, which is a normal set of checks and balances. That brake pedal has failed. And that's, what, that's why cancer takes many years to develop. If you smoke as a kid, you might develop, uh, 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 and through your early adulthood, you might develop cancer only in your 60s or 70s because so there's so many regu so many backup systems in cells that we've evolved over uh, 
you know, a couple million years or even, even longer as uh, even before Homo sapiens that we've evolved over many years to keep cells under control that all, every one of those backup systems has to fail before yeah. a cell starts dividing. So you have one break fails, a second break fails, a third break. That's why one mutation caught, takes out one break and then you have to wait years and years and then another mutation takes out the second break and then a third mutation takes out. So by the time you've got, you know, a handful of these breaks, there's a, there's a, you know, some work that was done showing that roughly seven things have, seven systems have to fail. That's when you get cancerous growth. So it's very difficult and it's very fascinating. And if you made progress in understanding what's going on, good. That's a great first step. Now what? Right. Well, how do you, how do you interrupt that accelerator pedal that's stuck with a, with a pedal that's jammed to the floor? Or how do you fix a broken brake pedal? So now what? So like if you've understood why the thing is happening, why the process is breakdown, you've gotten from the zero from your side of the end zone to the your five yard line. Now you got another 95 yards and that next 95 yards is, well, okay, how do we change that? How do we fix the brake pedal? How do we fix the, you know, unstick the accelerator pedal? And then what's the idea there? And then how do you create a product to realize that idea? And how do we advance? So that's the net. So I found that it kind of touched on every skill. It's sort of, instead of just lifting your left, going to the gym and lifting your left bicep because you're, you know, you're a brilliant, you know, you're really good at understanding this, 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 this cancer research idea or just, you know, being a businessman where you're really, you know, good at motive, building teams and motivating. You need to understand all of those skills. You need to understand the basic science. You need to understand how to translate it. You need to understand how to pull teams together with very different people and get them all focused. So it was, it required being kind of a multi-dimensional athlete to put it all together. And I found it, 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 it pushed every one of my buttons. I was curious to learn about more and more about the truth of how the world worked and how these diseases work. I was curious to learn about how you can interrupt the things that broke down and how you could improve these diseases. And I was excited to build teams that could bridge worlds. And that, you know, pushed all of my buttons. This is kind of what you talk about in your brand new book. If you think about just the, the subtitle, right? So it's called Loon Shots, but how to nurture the crazy ideas that win wars, cure diseases, and transform industries. And so what you mentioned and what a lot of people miss out on is, hey, I have this great idea. And the idea is like, great. Okay. You know, an idea is important, but it's like you said, it's the first five yards. Anybody who's ever tried to build anything realizes the idea is not the hard part. And what you talk about in this book is how do you take that little spark and actually turn it into something that does what the end goal is, that cures those diseases, that transforms those industries. So I'm assuming it was your experience with this pharmaceutical company and all the things we've discussed that led you into saying, hey, here's what I want to put in a book form. Is that right? Yeah, I think it was a combination of experiences that I had a couple of, of parallel track uh, backgrounds and things going on. And, you know, one of them was I was certainly working at a, a you know, it was a startup. It was just sort of two of us when we started and it grew into, you know, I think it, it, a couple hundred people at, at, at peak and, uh, and we went public and so on. But the, there was a fascination of like, all right, how do we go from idea to a product that can help people and all the steps in between. So that was kind of one parallel track I was spending my daytime and nighttime and weekends on that 
building a, you know, build it, growing a startup. Um, and I, you know, I did that for 13 years. So that was, that was a, a, a long time and, and a ton of experience and a roller coaster ride. And you, you learn a, you, you make a lot of mistakes and then you learn a lot along the way. Um, so that was one track. The second track was I, I did have this academic background where I'm studying in the academic world, in the academic sense, which is the, is the behavior of the, is collective behaviors. Kind of like, why is water slushy? Why is ice rigid when they're made of the same stuff? And those, those two things started to come together the more I started to th think and see around me that orga organizations would behave in very weird ways that seemed counterintuitive. And I'll, I'll give you an example. So um, when I started in, uh, I had a little startup and we running a company, I, I, I was, I think in my early, early thirties at the time. And I read everything I could find about building a great company. I wanted to build, you know, this, this terrific, terrific company, which would empower all of our employees and everybody would be super motivated around a big goal of developing a new cancer drug. And we'd reward our investors and, and, and help patients. And I would just read everything I could find. And you would see these articles and books, and most of them would talk about corporate culture. There'd be like these magazine stories with these famous leaders, their company, there'd be like some employee holding up some shiny product, like a, an Olympic, an Olympic runner holding up the torch and they'd be smiling with perfect white teeth glittering. And the, the CEO would be sitting back and he'd be interviewed. He'd be talking about, well, you know, I think the secret to our success over the last 20 or so years was, you know, our, the great corporate culture that we built. And then you'd open up, you know, uh, you know, a week later, a month later, that same company just imploded. And what happened? You know, that they, they just, the culture couldn't change that fast. It was the same culture. It was the same people. And that just kept coming. I just kept coming back to that glass of water. Like it's the same molecules and they suddenly go from being totally liquid, slushing around to being completely rigid. There isn't a leader that's saying, hey, you need to be liquid. And hey, and the problem is not that when they, they turn rigid, the problem is not that some molecule leader said, you know, we, we, the, the, it, that you know, we, 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 we really need to be rigid now. It's not the, the problem isn't that some molecule leader fell down on the job and, and stopped telling people to slush around. And be, it's some kind of property of the collective. So I just kept wondering about that. Why do these organizations suddenly change? Why do these groups suddenly change when the leaders keep talking about the same stuff, corporate culture, and the same companies do great for a while, then they crash after a while, and the people are the same and the culture are the same. And it just kept reminding me of this kind of example of a, a glass of water. And so I, I started wondering, is there, is there something else there? I'm fascinated by this idea of culture versus structure. I, in my experience, you're one of the few people who has kind of shied away a little bit from this definition of culture, which I have been just indoctrinated or or swamped in over the past five to ten years of my life due to the consulting that I did. But you talk more about how it's structure uh, or small shifts in that that can create the these transformations or these these great products or services. So tell us in your mind the difference between really focusing on culture versus focusing on structure. 
Right. And I, I think I was in the same boat as you. I was just, I, when I started, I kept reading these books and articles on culture and eventually they all sort of sound the same. And I just wanted to shoot myself in the head. Like, right. okay, what do I really do? Right. Like be innovative, blah, blah, blah. Should you? So I'll, I'll give you an example. First I'll, I'll, I'll talk about the, the bath and then I'll get, I'll give you a real world example in real business. But uh, when you say cultures, what you're really talking about is the behavior of those molecules of what you in Water and liquid water, those molecules are slushing around. That's their pattern of behavior. That's their culture. And when in ice, they're totally rigid. They're locked 2.8 angstrom. One molecule is 2.8 angstroms from the next and rows and rows and rows. And so that's a different pattern. Now, as I said, you can't change culture. Those cultural changes don't appear because one molecule is saying something to another. There's something else going on. It's a property of the collective. And what causes those changes is temperature. So temperature is the, the, the analog, which I'll come back to, temperature is called a control parameter. It's a control parameter that you dial and it changes. It's the element of structure that underlies culture. So by adjusting temperature, there are kind of two competing forces acting on every molecule inside the water. One wants to make those molecules run around and be free, and the other force wants to lock those molecules rigidly in place. And you know, one force is called entropy, makes them want to run around and be free. The other force is called binding energy, wants to lock. And as you adjust temperature, that's the control parameter, one of those forces gets weaker, the binding, the entropy gets weaker, the desire to run around gets weaker and weaker as you lower the temperature. And the binding energy becomes more and more important. And at a critical point, at 32 Fahrenheit, boom, those two forces cross and the system snaps, water freezes. So that's called, so that's a transition that's called a phase transition. You go from a water phase to a solid phase, a liquid phase to a solid phase. And it's always because you have these two competing forces and as you dial this knob, you change the balance between those two forces. So now let, let's talk about, I'll, I'll give you an example, Uber. So people, the, the culture at Uber before the CEO transition was, uh, it got a lot of press for sexual harassment, which was uh, of course absolutely going on. But what got less press, and I would hear from friends of mine who were senior executives at Uber, was the the culture inside the technology. And Uber actually had a lot of technology. They'd grown so fast, they had a lot of technology problems. And w whenever you hyperscale, whenever you go really fast, obviously you leave a bunch of things undone. You have a bunch of gaps. And in order to create a stable system, you need to go back and plug those gaps, fill in those holes. And they had a a culture that one um, that has been described as like a, everybody just wanted to be captain of their own speedboat. Everybody was running around trying to build the next great thing, the next Uber Eats or the next Uber Meds or the next Uber whatever. And it was obviously very difficult to go back. And so um, people who had been at other companies noticed that there was this kind of culture. Well, if you just talk about culture, you could say, well, all right, well, why don't you all hold hands and and sing kumbaya and everybody help each other out and let's watch some videos and put up some inspirational posters and like everybody, let's just help each other out. And you could preach that into the, you're blue in the face, but guess what? Everybody stayed captain of their own speedboat. Mm. So what was going on? Well, if you peel back the onion, let's look at what people's incentives were. As it turns out, Uber had this extraordinarily high incentive multiple. So what is an incentive? It means a bonus multiple. If you had a really great, if, you, if the project that you'd kicked off was your thing and you could demonstrate that you did a phenomenal job and it grew really well, 
you could get up to, let's say, eight times your bonus. Now, let's say your bonus is $30,000 or something. Let's say you have a, you know, you're an engineer and let's say it's 100000 a year you know, because it's engineers are very valued. And you have, let's say, $240,000 is a hell of a lot of money. Right. That's a quarter million bucks. So what are you going to do? Are you going to help your friends? Are you spend your time helping your friends out where the, you know, the, where there's some gaps in the system? Are you going to earn a quarter million dollars with, from your manager for doing that? Of course not. But if you go create something that's entirely your own and can show your boss that it's a big success, you got a lot of customers, a lot of users, and it's growing, then you might get that quarter million dollars. So underlying that culture of everybody's caps is a structural issue. And so that's what I'm talking about when I say structure versus culture. Let's, why are people doing what they're doing? What are their underlying incentives? What is the design of the organization that's encouraging? And, and just like with the molecules in, a, in, in water, it's, there's this apparent culture when it's a liquid and apparent culture or pattern of behavior when it's a solid. But underlying that are these underlying forces and these parameters that you can adjust to dial the, ba- the balance between those two forces. And that's, so that's what I talk, that's one part or, or sort of half the book is talking about you know, teasing out what are those parameters. And un- underlying that is actually a, a science. You could actually step back and work through what are people's incentives and what are the two kinds of incentives inside an organization whenever you bring people together into a team or a company or any kind of group with a mission. And then once you work that out, you can start to tease out, well, how do you adjust? How do those balance of incentives and in people adjust as you change, as the organization gets bigger or as various elements of the design of the or, organization? Once you, once you start to formulate that and articulate it in a way, all these surprising things pop out and you get these kind of four control parameters that just pop out. And these are the four things that determine whether you're going to be a solid or a liquid as an organization. And so, um, that's one piece of what the book is about. Well, and it's fascinating bringing in the mixture of your background in sciences and physics and, you know, pharmaceuticals. I mean, it's what makes it different and unique. And and people will define creativity as taking an understanding of different ideas, different genres, different aspects, and combining them to something that hasn't been thought of before. And I think that's what you do so well in this book. And so for those interested, I mean, we could go into it for days, but we can't cover the depth on something like this interview. So I would just recommend, you know, go get the book. It's Loon Shots. And and Safi, I want to say first, I appreciate you being on the show. I love everything we've covered is so core to what this show is about. Um, I encourage everyone to obviously read the book, but check out more about what you do. Is there anywhere else, are you writing or putting more out into the world or is your focus solely on this book at this point? Yeah, everything I write will be on the, on the website, loonshots.com. So if okay. you go there and you'll, you'll get all the latest content, there'll be stuff that's not in the book and there'll be, you know, articles and, and short pieces and videos and, um, I think th- there'll be a bunch of interesting videos. I'm talking to a group that's doing like animation around loon shots and there's a group that's doing, um, storytelling. Cause there's a, the book is really told through stories. It's, you know, how we won world war two, why does the world speak English and how they're all connected by this one idea. 
So there's a lot of stories so people can go there and find some of the stories. Well, and I will say stories are one of the best things that translate via both audio and in books. So, you know, I'm sorry to those listening that we didn't get into them, but I know that everything we've covered is, is, you know, really what this is all about. So again, Safi, just thank you so much for being on that book. For, um, just to make sure, and we'll link to it is Loon Shots, How to Nurture the Crazy Ideas that Win Wars, Cure Diseases, and Transform Industries. Uh, coming out on, it looks like March 19th. Is that correct? That's exactly right. Well, I really appreciate it. This has been a blast. Thank you so much for going down this winding curve in conversation with me. Yeah, I enjoyed it a lot, Chris. Thanks a lot. That was Safi Bacall, and that was awesome. Safi's book came out last week. It's called Loon Shots, How to Nurture the Crazy Ideas that Win Wars, Cure Diseases, and Transform Industries. Go pick it up. And of course, if you do pick it up, pick it up through the Smart People Podcast Amazon link located at smartpeoplepodcast.com slash Amazon. If you enjoy the show, there are so many ways to help out and the easiest and the freest way to head over to iTunes, Apple Podcasts, and leave a rating and review for the show. We always appreciate when listeners leave feedback. If you'd like to reach out to the show, you can email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. And if you want to stay in the loop of all things Smart People Podcast, head over to the website, smartpeoplepodcast.com, and sign up for the newsletter. All right, that's it for us this week. Make sure you stay tuned. We've got a lot of great interviews coming up. So we'll see you all next episode.